Section 16 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Moat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11 The Bid for the Crown. The Duke of York had not descended upon England at the same time as Warwick. The reasons for this delay are by no means obvious. He waited till Warwick had gained control of the greater part of England, then he returned landing at Redcliffe in Lancashire about September 2nd, 1460. Meanwhile, affairs had not been going altogether badly for the Yorkists. Queen Margaret, it is true, had found a supporter in James II of Scotland, who had seized the opportunity to make a bid for the castle of Roxburgh, which, although on the Scottish side of the border, was in English hands. But on August 3rd, while he was besieging the castle, one of his cannon burst and killed the king who was standing near. The Scots lords nevertheless carried on the siege and captured the castle within two days. But the death of their king made a prolonged campaign impossible. So after a dash across the border, they withdrew into Scotland. As the north of England was mainly Lancastrian in sentiment, Warwick, perhaps, was content to leave the defense of it to the local Lancastrian lords. He showed more anxiety for the fate of Calais. Somerset was still established at Guine, a constant menace to the Yorkist power. But Warwick commanded the sea, and Somerset could not maintain himself much longer. On August 5th, Henry had legally reinstated Warwick in his position as captain of Calais. Shortly after, the Earl crossed the sea and met Somerset at Newham Bridge. The two lords kissed each other, and Somerset, unconquered, agreed to evacuate Guine. He retired to Dieppe, where he remained for the next two months, waiting for an opportunity to join Queen Margaret in Wales. Warwick returned into England with his mother, the Countess of Salisbury. Parliament had been appointed to meet on October 7th. The election of members to the lower house in this parliament had no doubt been carefully supervised. The commons certainly showed little opposition to the claims of the Yorkists when parliament assembled. It is only too likely that interference in parliamentary elections by the party in power had been made easy by the law passed in 1430, which limited the franchise in counties to freeholders who had land to the amount of 40 shillings a year. This law must greatly have reduced the number of voters. A later law had enacted that members from the county must be of the dignity of knight. Moreover, many people felt that in Warwick and the Duke of York lay the only chance which the land had of quiet and orderly government. If aught come to my Lord Warwick but good, wrote Friar Brackley to John Paston, this land were utterly undone as God forbid. John Paston himself was sent up to this Parliament and was encouraged to support York by his friend. Ye have many good prayers, what of the convent city and country, wrote Friar Brackley. The members for boroughs, too, would probably be Yorkist. London always was so. The other towns would be equally anxious to support that party which was strong enough to enforce its will and to give the country peace. So the only difficulty in the way of the Duke of York would come from the lords, who would not consider so much the question of peace and quietness, 
but would follow the tradition of their family and support the prince to whom they were pledged. But although all the baronage was summoned, the great Lancastrian lords, those who were still alive, did not appear, for in their eyes a state of war was in existence between the king and the Yorkists. No parliament could be free as long as Henry was a prisoner. The Battle of Northampton had robbed him of some of his chief supporters, notably the Duke of Buckingham and the Earl of Shrewsbury. The Duke of Somerset was at Dieppe, meditating how to renew the struggle along with Queen Margaret. Of the other great lords, the Duke of Exeter was with the Queen in Wales, the Earl of Wiltshire was in sanctuary with the friars at Autry, the Earl of Northumberland, the Lords Clifford and Neville were still unconquered and defiant in the north. It was the Yorkist lords who came in full strength to Parliament on October 7th. Nor was there any doubt about the spiritual peers. Already when Warwick made his descent upon Kent in July, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Bishops of Salisbury, Exeter, and Ely had adopted the Yorkist cause. With these and the papal legate on his side, the Duke of York was not likely to experience much difficulty from the episcopate. Thus it happened that the Duke of York, by parliamentary procedure, was given a legal status at the head of England and a legal victory over all his enemies, and yet he had only won half the country, and but a few months more saw him defeated in the field and dead. York, after landing at Redcliffe, went to his castle at Ludlow. From there, with five hundred armed men in a livery of blue and white, he proceeded toward London. At Hereford, he was met by his wife, who, released from all constraint since the Battle of Northampton, had come from London on receiving a message from him. His eldest son, Edward, Earl of March, also joined him. The Duke held diverse strange commissions from the King to hold courts of justice as he passed along in Ludlow, Shrewsbury, Hereford, Leicester, Coventry. At Abingdon, near Oxford, he displayed banners with the royal arms of England upon them. Thus, with noise of trumpets and bugles, he came to Westminster on October 10th, three days after the opening of Parliament. Without delay, the Duke entered the chamber where the Lords deliberated, and walking up to the throne, which, as the king was not present, stood empty, he put his hand for a moment on the cushion of it, as if he was going to take possession. Then he turned and gazed upon the assembled peers. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Birchier, saluted him, and asked whether he wished to see the king, to which the duke replied, I do not remember to have known any one within the kingdom whom it would not become rather to come to me and to see my person than for me to approach and visit his. The archbishop retired to report this to the king who had gone to live in the queen's apartments. The duke retired to the king's own apartments in which he had chosen to lodge. The duke's demonstration in the House of Lords had not been a great success. Among an assembly of peers who were nearly all supporters of his, he met with no acclamation, no encouragement. The abbot Wedhamstead says the duke made his dramatic claim by his own inspiration as if he had not even consulted Warwick. The next step came six days later. On October 16th, the duke again entered the House of Lords and placed in the hands of the chancellor 
a written claim to the throne of England. The claim was the well-known Yorkist pedigree. It showed that in strict hereditary succession, traced through a female line, Richard of York stood nearer to the patriarch, Edward III, than did Henry VI. For Richard was descended directly through Philippa, only daughter of Lionel, Duke of Clarence, the second son of Edward III. Henry VI was descended in direct male line from John of Gaunt, third son of Edward III. The crown of England was not entailed upon heirs male, but could undoubtedly pass through a female. It is true that by an act of 1406 it had been entailed upon heirs male, but that act, although it was now cited, had been repealed by an act of Henry IV himself in Parliament, and it was definitely recognized that the crown could pass through females. Footnote. The claim of Henry IV to succeed to the throne directly from Henry III through Blanche of Lancaster proves that the Lancastrians themselves held this view. End footnote. There was indeed no need to go into legal subtleties. The plain facts were that in 1399, when Richard II was deposed, there were two great branches of the royal house left. An elder branch, the House of March, later merged in the House of York, and a younger branch, the House of Lancaster. An act of Parliament had given the throne to the House of Lancaster and thereby excluded the House of March or York. This act was perfectly good in law, being the work of a legal Parliament under Richard II. It had, moreover, been confirmed by a usage and prescription of sixty years. But if the Parliament of 1460 with the assent of King Henry VI, chose to supersede the Act of 1399 by a new Act, giving the throne to the House of York, that new Act would be good in law, and the House of York would lawfully hold the crown. It was this fact which the Duke had now to recognize. Since 1399, at latest, the crown had become parliamentary, and if he wished his case substantiated, he must get the consent of king and parliament to his claim. The judges refused to give an opinion. The law officers of the crown also refused. The lords then discussed the whole matter and drew up a memorial, in which they particularly noticed, firstly, the oaths they had sworn to serve Henry as their king, and secondly, the acts of parliament which had definitely recognized the title of the House of Lancaster. Finally, a result was arrived at on October 25th. The oath to Henry was not to be broken, for he was to remain king as long as he lived. And no constitutional law was to be violated, for the act on which the Lancastrian title was held to depend would be repealed, and another act would establish the succession of the Duke of York on the demise of Henry VI. All this was accordingly enacted with the king's consent on October 31st the revolution was carried out with all due legal forms. But people believed that it was only made legal by covert threats of violence. The Duke of York, says the chronicler Gregory, kept King Henry there at Westminster by force and strength, till at last the king, for fear of death, granted him the crown. For the man that hath by little wit will soon be afeard of death. And yet, 
Gregory thought that the king need have no fear, for there was no man that would do him bodily harm. There was one, at any rate, that would not submit tamely to see her son disinherited. This was Queen Margaret, who was still in Wales, where she had been joined by the Duke of Exeter. The northern lords, Northumberland, Clifford, Dacres, and Neville, were forming plans to assist her in the north. End of section 16